Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Anigage podcast. Uh, I know it has been a while. It's been several months since my, my last podcast. But, you know, work has gone in the way, but I'm really trying to make an effort this year to start continuing the, the podcast and bringing more more guests on. And today's guest is is very special to me because, you know, as you all know, philosophy is very important to me. And today's guest has helped me on that journey immensely because as many of you know, philosophy sometimes can be quite difficult. And, and because it's difficult, it can be frustrating. Uh, and so, you know, today's guest is Dr. Dr. Sadler, and he has made a lot of YouTube videos and he's a, a philosophy professor. Um, and the amount of value and the amount of help that I've gotten from him is, is just immense. So just hi, Dr. Sadler, and, and just thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me here. And I'm glad to hear that the videos have been helpful for you. And it kind of reminds me of of something, you know, when I first started shooting them, I was very skeptical about whether there was a point to it at all. My my wife was the one who, at that time, fiance was saying, well, what do you have to lose? You know, and I was like, well, who's going to watch this stuff, right? And very quickly, the comments that were coming in were quite revealing. And they were saying things like, you know, I can't afford to go to school or I was in college before and I studied some of this stuff and I'd forgotten about it and I wanted to, you know, bone up on it. Or disappointingly, there were a lot of people who are like, you know, my professor won't actually explain anything in class. So thanks for these, these videos. And that, that showed me that there was this great need and hunger out there for not, you know, not glitzy or anything, but just competent exposition of what's going on in philosophy. And I, I, it's probably the same for other disciplines as well, you know, English and rhetoric and history and the other humanities. But um, it's it's been good because it turns out I tried to some of my colleagues interested in shooting videos, especially when it was, you know, something that they understood far better than I. And I was like, why don't you uh, produce some videos on it? And, and most people just don't want to do it. <laughs> just, sort of like, you know, with with podcasting. I mean, we, we joke around today about, you know, everybody's got a podcast, but that's not true at all. You know, it takes a lot of work, as you were saying, right? Things easily can get in the way. And we were actually having a very interesting conversation before we started about priorities I think some people could look at not producing something as, oh, it's not a big priority for you. And I was saying, well, sometimes you postpone or procrastinate because you really want to do a good job on it. You know, it's very important. And so we can't even draw conclusions about what what a person truly values by what they manage to get to in their their work time. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And just so that people, maybe people that aren't familiar with you, maybe if you could just give like a very short, just in introduction oh, sure. about, you know, how did you come to, to this place and, and what do you do? Yeah. So I started out in traditional academia and I taught for nine years as an assistant professor, first for Ball State and then for Fayetteville State University. And, you know, I did the usual thing of publishing quite a few things, mostly for academics. And I kept on getting drawn into um, 
let's call it engagements with the community of people who were not philosophers, but wanted to know something about, about philosophy, broadly speaking. And then after I moved up to New York to be with my then fiance, now wife, um, I started teaching just part-time and, and, you know, producing more videos and doing other things, working with clients. And now I'm could think of me as somebody who's got like one foot in academia, you know, I still teach and, and produce online classes and things like that. But then I also do what we call public facing philosophy and uh, work with a lot of professionals as well. So, you know, it's, the other thing that people always ask me when I come on podcasts or shows is where can you find me? And I'm kind of fortunate. All you got to do is type Gregory Sadler into Google and like tons and tons of stuff will come up. So, you know, one of them is the YouTube channel, which I think people probably know me best from, but you know, there's a bunch of other things I do as well. So I guess in, you, you could think of me as like somebody who never even thought he was going to go to college, let alone study philosophy and become a professor eventually, um, who, you know, wants to see what we can do with this stuff, not just study it for its own sake. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, it's just like learning music for its own sake. You can play to an empty room and it's still valuable. But there's so much that you can do with, with philosophy that, uh, you know, sometimes I say that I'm a salesperson and I basically just have a really good product and it's not even my product. It's just something I've like taken from Descartes or Aristotle or Mary Wollstonecraft. And I, I put it out there and try to get people interested in reading it and thinking about it and, and applying it. Awesome. And it's really amazing that you didn't even, you know, thought that, that you would go to college. I, I had no idea. And so this actually kind of blends with a question that, that I really wanted to ask you, which is like, okay, what, how did you get, you know, started in your journey in oh. philosophy and like, just give a, a short description of like, you know, the, the young uh, Sadler and like, how, how did he get in, into the field? Well, the shortest description would be, I blundered into it at random and just sort of picked up things without any sort of intelligent planning. <laughs> and that went on for years and years, really. Um, I am not a great planner even today. So when I was in high school, I actually took two classes that were in effect philosophy classes. And one was terrible and one was great. Um, and I was what you would call a burnout. I was the kind of kid who like wore jean jackets or leather jackets and listened to heavy metal and, you know, got in fights and, you know, engaged in some petty crime. And I was smart, but as were many of us, but we didn't really, you know, apply ourselves in classes and we just kind of screwed around a lot, enjoyed partying, you know, and I intended, and I did later on do this, just, you know, going into the army didn't think I'd ever go to college. So I didn't even take like the, the tests that you're supposed to take, like the ACT and the SAT. I didn't do any of that until I actually got in the army and they, they made me take the SAT because they wanted me to become an officer, which ended very quickly as I got in, in, a, in a fight in the, the barracks and got in trouble for it. So, you know, you got like screw up Greg and I was going to this Catholic school 
called Catholic Memorial High School. And they had a philosophy class. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. I've heard of this. And I took it and it was just terrible. It was the most dry, boring stuff, you know, taught by an instructor who he clearly enjoyed some of the ideas, but he didn't enjoy discussion. And he was kind of a stick in the mud, you know? And so if that was my only exposure, you know, I probably wouldn't have done anything. And then the next year, the next academic year, we had this guy who, um, he was teaching a sacraments class. So not even a philosophy class, but it's, it's, you know, some sort of religious class. And he was a substitute teacher. And he, he said, well, I'm going to teach about Augustine because Augustine is my guy. And in order for you to understand Augustine, because Augustine's a philosopher and he had this, you know, crazy life before him, we got to do some, you know, some learning about Plato and Aristotle and the Gnostics and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And he taught in a philosophical way. He would present us with something and then he'd say, well, what do you think about this? You know, can you give some reasons for why you think this way? And he promoted discussion, which a lot of the students hated. They were, they were very much about like, I want to learn what I have to do to pass this class. Tell me exactly what I need. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and you don't have any power over me because I'm a substitute teacher. You know, I can do what I want to do. What are they going to do? Fire me? And so that that was really great. That was my introduction to these ideas like, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave or the doctrine of the forms or, you know, Aristotle's four causes and all of that sort of interesting stuff. And then, you know, I, I got out of high school and worked for a while, went in the army, got out of that, went to college. And my mother's boyfriend had had the advice for me because very few people in my family went to college. So he said, as soon as you get to college, declare a major immediately, because then you're, you're in with some, some people. You're not just, you know, a freshman getting lost in, in a ocean of other students. So I looked down the list and I was like, philosophy, that sounds cool. I'll do that. You know? And so I started taking classes, you know, and it, it turned out that I kind of had an aptitude for it and I enjoyed it. If I had been at another school where the professors were much more prescriptive, maybe I wouldn't have stayed in it, you know, but these guys were kind of burnt out. And so they would, they would teach us stuff and then say, go read whatever the hell you want, you know, figure it out for yourself. And so we had a good library and I'd go in there and, and, uh, you know, I saw the connections between philosophy and other things as well. And, and uh, so it was a congenial course of study for me. And I was just kind of lucky that I blundered into it, you know, and then I, I just, you know, force of inertia kind of kept doing it. Now it's more than 30 years in. <laughs> right. Interestingly, I'll tell you one other thing too. So I don't know if you've played around with chat GPT. Yeah. The artificial more than I should thing. probably. Well, did you ever ask it to tell you about yourself? Well, I'm not in the position to do that, but I suppose you are. Try it out. Just just see what it comes up with because it's really kind of crazy. So, you know, it, it knows that I do philosophy and I've got videos and all that. It attributed to me all sorts of books and articles that I've never written and that I know are written by other people who I'm friends with. Oh, <laughs> you know? So it's not just making them up, but 
sort of like stealing them, you know, misattributing them. And then it told me I had never been in the army because I asked it directly about that, that I'd always been studying philosophy. That was my goal from the beginning. And I was, you know, I was, I was struck by that. And I was like, if this actually knew anything about me from, I don't know, my, my teens into my early twenties, um, it wouldn't be saying these sorts of things. And that information is, you know, readily available on the web. It's like in my Amazon profile that I was in the army and, you know, and yet chat GPT going by what's available on the internet. It was convinced that I, you know, I deliberately made my way into philosophy and that was what I chose as my life, you know, life path career from day one. You know, it's, right. it's kind of funny to see the confabulation that it, it engages in. Yeah, that's funny. I think that's just kind of like how it's built because I think it, my understanding works a lot on on prediction. So it just it just literally makes stuff up when it's when it's unsure because it's <laughs> it's language based basically. So it just confabulates. That's yeah, really funny. Yeah. And when when you chose the the philosophy major, was that directly influenced by the fact of kind of the the good philosophy assistant teacher that you had? I don't know that that was like front and center in my mind, I'm sure it was in the background because having engaged with him took the sour taste of the previous class out of my mouth. <clears throat> and, you know, I'd, I'd read a few things since then. So it's not, he's not directly responsible for that, but you could think of him as like somebody who showed me that, that it could be interesting to, to study philosophy, you know, so he, he laid a groundwork. Right. Awesome. I was also lucky to, to have a teacher in, in high school that in philosophy, mm -hmm. you know, it was also quite good. And he, again, he, he had this, this spirit of, of discussion and, and I really liked him and that I didn't quite pick philosophy back then. I don't even remember why, like, like when I seriously started reading, it was much later than that, but, but something that's really made an impression on me is that I felt that he liked the subject and yeah. he liked teaching because what I always felt in school and I always hated school. Like I didn't even like, I'm, I'm doing the master's degree, but I didn't even complete high school. I, I quit. And, and I hated school back then. And, and one of the reasons, one of the many reasons that I, I hated school was that I felt that all the teachers liked their subjects but they just ended up as teachers because mm. there was just nothing else for them to do right so like in biology yeah, yeah. they like biology but it's like well like, it's not quite easy to find a job so i'll just go teach but you know that teacher in philosophy just, just was really passionate about other people you know learning and just like you described you know he was like what do you think about this you know what's some yeah. possible counter arguments and and to me you know that was amazing just very very pleasant experience and i'm, I'm forever thankful for it it's always amazing how you know how such a short period of time that was probably like a year that i had philosophy yeah. like in, in our in portugal what i was from it's not you know you don't have it for very long but it still made a mm -hmm. good impression on me which is quite you know, yeah i think i think you're pointing out something that's really massively important in teaching which is not only caring about your subject and being invested in it, like you point out, you know, biology teachers who, you know, are very interested in that, but wanting to see, not just wanting to engage with other people, but wanting to see them develop and them engage with those ideas to communicate that passion to them, 
right? To awaken it within them. It's very, it's very Socratic if you think about that. You know, it's sort of like think Socrates talks about he's a midwife who tries to bring to birth ideas and not only in his head, but in other people's heads, right? So, and that it has to be done in a very uh, on the ground, individualized way, right? You can't approach, there's no method for approaching every single student. And here's how you're going to awaken this, you know, this love for philosophy and young minds. It's, it's very contingent, you know? And so you have to be able to connect not just in philosophy or in whatever subject it is, but to them as a person. So, you know, that that's tough to do. And I think, you know, as I age, I see a lot of my peers who might have been good at that before, and then they become a bit resentful about the kids these days and, you know, how they have to be approached and the interests they have. But it's 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 so important, you know? I mean, you can, you can wall yourself off and be like, you know, back in my day, this is what we did. And if it doesn't connect with the, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds of, of today, you're just kind of wasting your time, right? And, you know, indulging yourself being the grumpy old uh, uh, curmudgeon, which is what a lot of people in my generation, Generation X, are turning into, you know. Um, and it doesn't have to go that way, you know. I, I find it's great to teach these classes to, to young people because I get to hear the things that they're really interested in and shaped by and concerned with, you know. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, I think it's a... I think I've seen you mention this as well, which is like you like teaching, you know, people that aren't, you know, strictly from from philosophy. Mm. It's like also the kind yeah. of the generation gap, even, you know, even if there's some differences and some of those differences might be negative in, in some sense, you know, it's just variety. They they come at it from 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 a different perspective. And that's you know, that's really important. That's that's what creates novelty, I suppose. Yeah. And and you can impress upon them. I mean, there's there's the pandering thing. And you, I think everybody's seen that meme with Steve Buscemi and he's got the skateboard and the, the, you know, backwards hat. And he's like, how do you do my fellow kids? You don't want to be that guy. Right. But there is a sort of, you know, adaptation to every new generation and bringing these ideas. And you can say to them, you know, when I was a young person, I thought this was not going to be all that interesting or valuable, but holy crap, look at what Thomas Hobbes has to offer. Look at what, you know, pick whoever else you want that we keep going back to. These ideas are going to be talked about after all of you are older than me and, you know, are, are have figured out what your life path is. Don't you want to, you know, spend some time there? And if you can do that with people who are not already committed to philosophy, then you're expanding the discipline, right? So prefer to teach classes that are not philosophy majors precisely because that's where you have the most traction. That's where you, you know, you encounter the, the skeptical people who are like, why the hell do I have to take this class? You know, what, what good is this going to do me? You know, I, I also make quite often, it depends on where I'm teaching, but sometimes I make a financial appeal to them where I'm like, listen, you're paying $5,000 for this class. You probably want to retain something of this five years from now. So you didn't just throw that money away. Right. And, you know, the more expensive the school, obviously the greater the impact of the argument is. <laughs> yeah. It's a good point to bring. 
And when you mentioned that, you know, you mentioned, for example, you know, someone might not feel that, you know, a particular thinker or a particular mm -hmm. idea was that impactful on their life. And then later they were like, oh, actually, you know, th this brings a lot of value. Yeah. What would you say was like, you know, the, the biggest philosophical worldview change that in your life where you looked back and it's like, oh, you no, know, this thinker, I thought it was completely, you know, nuts or had nothing to say. And now I think it's you no know, one of the best thinkers around or, or, or vice versa. Yeah, I don't know that there's a single most um, example that I can point to because I've gone through a number of different like phases and transitions. Um, I could say that, you know, reevaluating stoicism has been really important. I never became, you know, like a, a committed, I'm on team stoic kind of person. I've always been, you know, an eclectic. But that said, I probably, you know, know more about stoicism, practice more stoicism than many of the people who self-identify as stoics out there who don't actually read the texts and just read, you know, like quips or secondary lit. But yeah, reading, you know, reading Epictetus and not just the Enchiridion, but the discourses and then reading Seneca mainly because of his work on anger. I came to realize that the what I'd been told about the Stoics was wrong and that it was really worthwhile studying them as their own tradition, like Aristotelianism or, or Platonism, you know, and then taking whatever I, I could from them. I did also, you know, when I was much younger, I went through an existentialist phase. This is like in my teens and 20s where I was very influenced by Nietzsche and kind of a misreading of Nietzsche. You know, it was like, we should all be tough guys. Let's be uber mentioned and be, uh, you know, the dominating person. Thumos is, is or, you know, drive and and uh, desire for honor is, is, is a good motivation. And then I got into Jean-Paul Sartre. And part of what I took from him is everybody's responsible for their own life. And, you know, so if things didn't turn out right for you, tough crap for you, buddy, you know, which is also not what Sartre is preaching. But, you know, I went through that adolescent phase and fortunately came out of that because I was acting like kind of a jerk. And then later on, reread Nietzsche and reread Sartre and saw that there was so much more to their philosophy that I'd missed. You know, sometimes you have to age a bit, I think. And then, I mean... You know, I did a, a long time where I was very interested in the philosophy of language and continental philosophy, particularly the French post-structuralists. And I kind of wandered my way out of that into a greater appreciation for, you know, the whole scope of, of philosophy's history. Um, and I haven't left those, those people completely behind, like Derrida or Foucault or Deleuze, but I I always ask, well, how much of this is actually true and what what can I how would I actually apply this, you know? I mean, there's some really cool concepts, but if you can't do anything with it other than like look at it and say, "Ooh, how cool." I don't know how how you, how good that is. And and I think that part of the reason why philosophies stay around and stick with us for centuries is precisely because there's something we can do with it in our lives right well and i think i think the you know existentialist teenager phase i think i suppose that's 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 very common 
Yeah. And and about stoicism and anger, that's you know, actually it's actually something that I, I plan to to bring up bring up later in the okay. episode if I have some time. So so that's awesome. Sure. Um something that I wanted to ask you is that I once saw someone um asking you a question of why you don't talk more about, you know, for example, thinkers in, in India or China or yeah, whatnot. Yeah. And your response was, well, I can't read the languages and I can't read the original text. And to me, that just feels like really overkill, right? And so I'm just wondering, you know, how much nuance do you think is is actually lost mm. in translation? And also, if your position is biased from the perspective that you feel like you're in a position of authority where you feel like you have responsibility for missing those nuances compared to a more casual reader. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things there. Um, one thing I'll say right off the bat is that my answers to those questions, which usually come up in AMAs, are not just about not reading the original language. It's also that I, I'm not an expert in those those traditions. You know, I may teach Chinese philosophy or some, you know, text from Indian or Islamic philosophy, but there are people who do that way better and way more competently than than I do. And part of that is like being able to read the original text, but even like stuff in translation, you know, I can I can teach a world religion class and like steer them towards, you know, Confucius's Analects and the the, the Mengzi and stuff like that. But when it comes to like Neo-Confucianism and contemporary Confucian stuff, you know, just an amateur, you know. And so it would be irresponsible for me to be putting myself out there as an expert when there's already other people in, in the field doing that quite well. There's no reason why I should be um, taking the air out of the room, right? So like when it comes to to Chinese philosophy, I'd rather go to Brian Van Norden or some of the other people that I, I actually, when I'm teaching that stuff, like in an online class, I send my students to other people's videos, not to mine. Um, other than the really rudimentary stuff, like, you know, what are the, what are the Confucian classics? Okay. I can do something on that, but I can't do all that, that much beyond that. And then, you know, the other thing is the factor of time. Um, we don't get anywhere near enough time to produce resources on everybody that we'd like to. So even in like Western philosophy, which is a vast number of traditions, I'm only doing a tiny little bit of it, you know. Um, with Aristotle, I've got videos covering the entirety of the Nicomachean ethics, which took me a long time to produce. I don't have anything on topics, the Dianima, you know, I've got one set on the metaphysics book one, one on politics book one, a little bit of the rhetoric. There's all these things that I'm, I'm missing, right? So it's not as if like I just one day sat down and said, I'm screw it. I'm not doing that, that Indian philosophy stuff. It's, it's a much more complicated thing. And I, I think that I have a responsibility if I'm going to put videos out there to talk about the stuff that I can be reasonably confident I understand well, you know, as opposed to just talking out my ass, which I do see a lot of people doing on other channels, unfortunately, um, including, you know, I'll mention if anybody ever tries to tell you Hegel is all about synthesis, antithesis, 
or thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, just stop watching right there because they're because they're full of crap, you know. So anyway, there's, there's that that's one thing. And then the question about like being an authority or an expert, I think that's it's unavoidable. Um, and there is always going to be, I don't want to say like an entire hierarchy or something like that, but we're we're not all on the same level, you know. There are people who um, know particular thinkers or texts or traditions better than I do. And if they're in the room and they say something and I think, you know, it doesn't sound right, I may talk with them about that, but I, they've probably got really good reasons for what they're saying. So if, you know, if I want to get into an argument with Alistair McIntyre about interpreting Aristotle, there's a good, there's more than a 50-50 chance that he's right and I'm wrong, you know, or well, let alone Marx. I mean, he was a Marxist for years and years. Or if I want to get into a, a you know, a discussion with Julia Annis about the Stoics, she probably knows them better than I do. <laughs> so, so it's, I think there's nothing wrong with having, you know, a kind of relation of like authorities and then everybody else, but there's like gradations of authority. And we do have to be kind of careful because there's false authorities. You know, there's people that get put forward as if they're experts or they put themselves forward as experts and they're, they're really not. And so, you know, how do we know who's actually um, on point and who's not? We never know 100%, right? So a lot of what we do in philosophy and really studying anything else is we, you know, we go at it, we get it partly right, partly wrong, and then we go at it again and we get it a little bit more right. And we talk with other people and some of them, you know, we're like, well, they clearly don't know what they're talking about, but this person over here does. And they say stuff that I'm not sure I agree with. I better take a look at what they have to say and why they're saying it. And then we, we start getting things more and more right, you know, and, and I don't think we have to like get to 100% before we can open our mouths, that would be kind of unrealistic. And we'd never know if we were actually hundred percent anyway, you know? Um, and, you know, when it, the other th issue that you ask about the translation, so this is, this is really kind of funny. And, and I think that some of your listeners may find this rather frustrating to hear. So the only way to know whether a translation is really an adequate translation is to know the the language it's being translated into and to know the source material. And, you know, it's, it's not going to be something where there's complete consensus about it either. Checking it with Google translate is probably the worst idea that, that you could, you could have, right. Because each author is using the words in a somewhat different way, you know? So you kind of have to know the stuff to know what a good translation looks like which means you're kind of screwed, right? Because if you can't read it, how, you can only read it in translation. You got to kind of trust. And so, you know, it's not as if we're totally at sea, you know, with Kierkegaard, I can be reasonably confident that the additions that were put out by the Hongs and, and their translation is going to be, you know, pretty reliable, but I, I don't know. I don't know hundred percent because I can't read Danish, you know? I, I can go back to the text and look at it and kind of puzzle out a few words by its similarity to German, but there's not a hell of a lot there, you know? 
same thing with like, so I can, I can read some Portuguese academic articles, but I don't read Portuguese. You know, I can't like pick up a, a magazine or a newspaper and figure out what the hell's being said. You know, I can sort of triangulate using what I know of Portuguese, you know, grammar and conjunctions and the French and Latin that I have to make sense of that. Or same thing with Italian. When it comes to like academic articles, they're pretty easy to follow, but if you and I were to be like speaking in, in Portuguese, I wouldn't be able to follow anything, you know? So, so, you know, you've, you've got that going on. So when we move from like the European languages, like Portuguese or, or Danish, and we're talking about Sanskrit or Pali, you know, or, or contemporary Hindi, I'm so far out of my depth that I, I wouldn't, you know, there's no way I could kind of fake it. <laughs> and, uh, I think it would be foolish for me to do so, you know, it would be irresponsible, you could say. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And, you know, it's, it's really absurd to me, you know, a lot of times when I think about that standard, but also that that's also because, you know, kind of the different expectations, which is like, I'm an enthusiast of, of philosophy, you know, when you're at, you know, more or less at the highest level that you can get in, into okay. the discipline. So, you know, for me it's 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 always funny when, when i when i have the realization a very basic realization that people learn languages just to learn you know just to be able to read the, the text in the original language right so like if you want to yeah if you're a fan of hegel you know, you're just you're just gonna gonna learn the language to me that's just almost absurd but i, I suppose if you're really serious about philosophy and, and it fits your life well, basically then it's unavoidable i suppose yeah although you don't know before you actually do it whether it's worth it or not and i could see people like with hegel who's not a great writer in terms of style you know i could see somebody learning german just to be able to read hegel and then being bitterly disappointed when they read hegel in german and find that he's just as confusing in german as he is in the english or pick whatever other language translations you know um but with German, at least, you could be like, well, okay, so I, I I, learned German to read Hegel. Now I can read Rilke and Nietzsche and Kafka and Goethe and all these other people, right? There's a consolation there. If you learn Danish to read Kierkegaard, who is a great writer stylistically, but I don't know, maybe something didn't mix. Who else are you going to read, you know? Um Georg Brandes, I guess, you know, but his stuff's been translated into to English. Um, I don't know too many other Danish philosophers who are writers who are up at that level that you would say, um, I don't remember, I don't remember if Ibsen is Danish. I want to say no, right? Um, but in any case, you see the, yeah, the yeah, issue there. Yeah, I get the point. And well, and you know, German is, is certainly a good one to pick for, for exactly that reason. You know, you get like half half the people that's that you should be reading anyhow. You know, I will say that I've you know, I've been in Portugal and learned just enough Portuguese to like get around and order at restaurants and you know, book a hotel room and stuff like that. And I did buy a copy of uh uh Camoes, you know was lucidarish and i i really you know i i open it up every once in a while just to like read through it and and read it aloud in in you know the 
probably mispronunciations that I have just to like hear what it kind of sounds like. And I, you know, I would, I've read it in, in translation and I realize what a great work it is. And I, I know that it would be worth my time if I could ever find the time to learn uh, Portuguese, to be able to read it. And it would open up a door to all sorts of other things as well, but I just never get around to it. You know, I've had that book now for more than 20 years, you know? Well, well, it is difficult. I think, I think maybe French, so I think might, might be, might be easier and, and it's more, more recent oh, yeah. as well. And it's more yeah, philosophical yeah. as well, at least more directly philosophical, I suppose. Um, you know, Something that I, that I wanted to get your take on is that a lot of people have, you know, kind of proclaimed the end of philosophy, and by yeah. that I don't mean, I don't mean in the sense of like within philosophy of of like you know someone like like Kant or Hegel or Wittgenstein or mm -hmm. something like that. I mean, kind of outside philosophy in the sense of like, it's not like philosophy has been completed. It's more so that philosophy itself has been supplanted by science rent, so, rendered irrelevant exactly science, exactly right? so like stephen yeah. hawking's you know famously said philosophies that yeah, you know, yeah richard dawkins has always you know kind of hinted at that and so people in general just seem to have a really difficult time to 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 appreciate the value of of philosophy nowadays and so yeah true i just wanted to ask you one if you have noticed in your own lifetime of of this getting worse over time because i feel that that's in part of how technological society has become um and also if there's any approach or method that you found that it's easier to make people realize the value because for example i have mm -hmm. a lot of friends that are not into philosophy at all and they're really yeah. smart you know college educated a lot of them have phds some, some are researchers and they still just don't get it. And and it's it's really difficult for them to get in like a you know a casual conversation. You know, I can't just tell them, you know, go read Plato and, and come back to me. Um so yeah, just any yeah. insight of that would be amazing. Well, um yeah, that's that that's a good set of questions. So there's the practical side of like, well, how do you how do you approach people? And then there's the sort of broader cultural question of has this um disinterest and dismissal of philosophy gotten worse over time. I don't think with respect to that one that it has. We're always rather restricted by our own, you know, sphere in which our experiences are taking place, right? So you can like I I, you know, studied philosophy here in the United States. I'm kind of aware to some degree of what's happening in Europe and Great Britain and Australia and Canada, but not not too much in other places. And even within the United States, there's like all these different institutions and all these different discourses. I didn't go to places that were close to, let's call it, the centers of philosophical power and prestige, you know? So things, and it's interesting, I have interacted with a lot of people from elite institutions and they'll often say things like you know nobody's reading that anymore and you're like well as i know as a matter of fact a lot of people are reading this over here and not just in philosophy but also in other communities you know but they're they're very sure about precisely what is still going on and and, and what's not and and i think nobody really has a handle on the totality of what's going on in philosophy. It'd be impossible to do so. We have people who try to pretend that they 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 do, 
But that's it. They're just pretending. They're looking at a little section that they're interested in and, and generalizing from that. And I think back about, so, you know, like I said, I've been in this game for about 30 years. There have been so many announcements so many times about this. And then when you look back at it in history, there's so many announcements along similar lines going back centuries that we should be very skeptical of any new expert telling us that philosophy is dead or you know, nobody's paying attention to philosophy or any, any of these sorts of things. And, you know, I've read Hawking, Hawking's book and he's, he's, he doesn't have enough philosophical chops to actually say anything about philosophy, unfortunately, you know, as I think a lot of these, these people who generalize about it, it it's the case for them. Um, and they, they don't know, you know, they don't look back in history and see that maybe Herbert Spencer, Auguste Comte said the same positivistic things about that years and years and years ago. So they're not coming up with new thoughts. Um, now, the question about how do you reach people, sometimes you don't even tell them that you're getting the insights that you're bringing to them from philosophy. So like when I, when I teach about ethics and anger and stuff like that to business people, I don't tell them that the ideas are coming from Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or the Stoics, because if I did that, then they would be like, well, you know, have you heard of Stephen Covey? You know, <laughs> have you read, have you ever heard of Ryan Holiday? You know, and it's, it's just, you know, that's a time wasting conversation. But if they come to me afterwards and they're like, holy crap, the stuff that you're, you're, talking about it's really helpful where where did you get it and i'll be like well i mean this is straight out of thomas aquinas you know anger being the difficult good or being oriented towards the difficult good and here's the different modalities of how that works then they're more receptive to it and part of that is to answer the more general question how do you get people to take it seriously show them that it has uh implications for their own life and relationships and their way of understanding themselves or society. Most classical philosophical texts, systems, whatever you want to call them, they've got lots and lots of stuff that just often isn't explained well to other people. You know, there's too many people doing philosophy who are like, like the biology teacher that you're talking about. They're not interested in uh, reaching their audience. They're interested in geeking out with the few students who they see as like little thems who they can talk the stuff that they're interested in. They leave the rest of the class behind, you know? I mean, if you, I can tell you this, if you come into a classroom or a seminar room with, you know, business people or artists or pick whoever else you want. I mean, I actually do this, this thing at the women's club of Wisconsin called philosophy eats where once a month they have a dinner and I come in and I've got like, you know, one page of notes for them or, or, you know, quotes and stuff like that. And they have me like sit there as the food's being brought out and chat about something for maybe 10 minutes. And then they ask me questions and they chat back and forth, you know, um, that's that's a way to to get people interested in in philosophy, you know, and you give them reading suggestions. But anyway, so come in the classroom. If you come in the classroom and your students can tell that you're you're interested in the topic, 
you value where they're coming from. You're not saying, oh, you're a nursing major. That's crap. You're not doing philosophy. You know, you should really be doing philosophy. If you can say, you know, you can be a good nurse and also bring these things from philosophy into your practice, or you can be a good accountant or, you know, there's so many other things that we, we could talk about. As a matter of fact, as a total side note, some of my favorite students when I was at Marist College, fashion design majors, because they were super hard workers. They would do the reading. They, you know, they always engaged in class. They asked questions. They thought about things. And they thought that they were dumb because everybody else kept telling them that they were superficial and stupid when they weren't, you know, so they were like perfectly, you know. Uh, fertile ground for philosophical ideas. So you come in and, and you talk to the students, right? And it creates this really positive feedback loop where they can tell that you you care about them enough to try to reach them with these ideas that are difficult and we have to pull out of these texts. And then they start seeing that you can apply the stuff and that the examples that they bring up in class, you'll consider them and even put them on the board and talk about it. And they, you know, they... They think that you're coming at them with goodwill. Now, this is talked about by philosophers. Aristotle in the Art of Rhetoric, Cicero in his own discussions of rhetoric throughout his works, they, they're constantly saying you can't teach effectively without teaching to your audience, you know? And so, um, I mean, I think you could say this, this works for other venues as well. You want to create that that connection with, with people. And so you can't, this is the challenge for philosophy, right? Philosophy is supposed to be this universal, we come up with truths that are always, you know, going to be effective, no matter what, or valid, no matter what. Well, yeah, we can do that, but we have to make it matter for the people that are in the room that we're talking to. And if you can do that, I think people are pretty generous and they'll, Maybe it's because so few people do it for them, you know, that we're, we're just like getting low hanging fruit. But my experience has been they, they'll be pretty generous and they, you know, they'll give you a little bit of razzing about philosophers being impractical or bullshit artists or stuff like that. But if you don't take that, if you don't get, get offended by that and you just like keep talking to them, they're usually pretty cool with that, you know? Yeah, those are great points. And, and I really love, you know, what you mentioned, kind of like in the business, you know, context of like not, not even mentioning the philosophy, which is quite weird, right? Because a lot of people would say that you should do the opposite because you want to give, give kind of like credibility and authority to the ideas that you're exposing, but you do exactly the opposite, which I find really funny. But I can totally yeah. see why it works, especially within that, within that situation. Well, I'm relying on a different kind of prestige and authority, though. It's usually I'm being brought in as like an expert, not, not in philosophy, but in anger management or in working through conflicts or stuff like that. Right. Or an ethics consultant. Right. And, and so I've already, I'm already trading. So I'm not coming in raw. Right. I'm trading on the fact that people are already going to be irrationally paying attention to what I have to say. <laughs> Which is fine, right? You got to work with what you got. So yeah, totally. <clears throat> um, you speak very often about the importance of reading primary texts, mm. and I have a confession to make, which is I don't read very often 
primary text. And I know this is very, you know, anti Sadler. I'm a bit embarrassed of, of, <laughs> of saying it out loud to the man himself. Well, I don't but, have like a program or something. So. <laughs> but the reason why is that I just feel like it's just a huge, huge time investment, especially with, with difficult right. yeah. thinkers. Yeah. And, you know, I totally understand that you get a lot of depth, but I just feel that there's kind of diminishing returns that are, are very, very heavy that you encounter right away. That's number one. And then also, I just feel odd when I'm like trying to get deeper into mm -hmm. a thinker and like spending tons of time, like, you know, 100 hours plus, you know, just dissecting a really difficult text when I could just get, you know, secondary literature that, you know, is a lot more approachable, which will miss things, obviously, right? Yeah. I just feel weird, you know, get going from mm -hmm. like, you know, let's say that I understand, you know, Heidegger, you know, 10%. I feel weird putting a lot of time getting that 10% to 15% and justify that over, well, I never read Kierkegaard's and I'm at zero. I just yeah, feel yeah. like it's a lot more productive to go from zero to 10 on Kierkegaard there. Um, so th that's one one thing, which is the time. And then there's an issue with other issue, which I've also seen you talk about, which is, the interpretation, right? So it's like if you're yeah. relying on secondary sources, then you know it's whatever that person thinks. You're just assume that's what the original author meant, and obviously, you know that that's not the case. Yeah. And again, I totally get that, but kind of the the counter argument that always arises in my head with that is that I'm also making my own interpretation. Like there's no mm -hmm. way around that, and not only that, but also the person that I'm reading interpreting that author. Is probably yeah. way smarter than me and has put, you know, a hundred times more effort. So it just feels like, I don't know, it just well, doesn't feel a bit compelling in that sense. So on the interpretation thing, it's not that there is an interpretation that's the problem. We're always engaged in interpretation and it's always going to be selective. It's whether it's, you know, a more or less good interpretation. Um, and, and there will be some authors in secondary literature might be smarter than you or me, but they're not smart in a real sense. They're just clever. And sometimes they're able to have that appearance because they had a whole bunch of graduate students doing the work for them. You know, you never quite know with a lot of these secondary authors until you look into them, what their, their situation was. And so, you know, some of them are not just interpretations, they're actually misinterpretations that are going to lead you astray. Good example of this is, so A.G. Grayling has a history of philosophy, a big, thick book. And I, I was talking about this on the Hegel video that I did over the, the weekend. Grayling repeats that thesis, antithesis, synthesis thing. Here, he clearly hasn't done like the the real reading required to talk about people. His his history of philosophy is problematic for a lot of other pro reasons too. He's he gives very short shrift to women philosophers who we know are quite important, like Mary Wollstonecraft and Marge Cavendish and Anna Stell. You know, he'll talk about Simone de Beauvoir very briefly, but he's uh, he's clearly got a he's coming at things from a particular angle which is not just his own, but reflective of generations of getting things partly right, partly wrong. You know, the Stoics are another prime example. Really, you know, from the 19th century onward, there was this tendency to devalue 
Hellenistic and Roman philosophy, it, by comparison to Plato and Aristotle, say, well, you know, the real philosophical stuff is there in Plato and Aristotle, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the skeptics, these Christian writers that are, you know, eclectically appropriating them. None of them are really any good. They're all kind of, you know, third rate. Well, that's, that's a prevalent view that you, know, you can find in Hegel and Heidegger and, and I would say Bertrand Russell and quite a few other people. And it's, if, if you read that, and you sort of, you're like, well, I, the smart guy says this, so it must be true. Now you've got mistaken ideas about what's actually in the philosophies. And so it's sort of like the problem with translation. How do you know who's getting it right if you haven't read the primary stuff? I mean, you can you can rely on recommendations like, you know, I often say, you know, Friedrich Cobbleston, pretty reliable He's sticking close to the original thinkers and their texts. There's a few places where I might quibble with him, but on the whole, I'm I'm cool with people reading him. When people are like, well, what about Bertrand Russell's history of philosophy? I'm like, well, I mean, it's going to be a lot of Russell and Russell's takes on things. And so I wouldn't rely on it too heavily. Or if people are like, well, what about William Durant and the story of philosophy? Don't rely on that at all, because it's mostly like, you know, his own weird eccentric takes or wrong takes from other things. And he's got a strange way of arranging it. He, um, you know, sometimes makes stuff up as far as I can tell, you know, so there's, there's, there's all of that. Now, time issue, and the what am I going to get out of it issue? I think that's totally legitimate. I don't think that everybody has to read everything, you know, or even a portion of it. Like, I see all these people who are convinced that unless they've read Kant's critique of pure reason, they've somehow missed out on something massively important. And I mean, it's a good book. I, I actually prefer the, the second and third critique to the first critique. Think they're more interesting myself. They don't have the kind of weird prestige that people have accorded the the first critique, and so a lot of people are like, "Well, I've got to read this," you know, and maybe you don't. I mean, maybe you don't have to read Heidegger's Being in Time, or you know, I mean, I can assure you that you can live a perfectly fine life without reading Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. You know, that's that's a work where it probably would benefit just from a summary rather than wandering your way through it. Um, so I, I think there's 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 something there that's that's quite correct. And I mean, the bad news is you can't read even more than a portion of what's available. The good news is even the people who do it professionally are not reading a hell of a lot more than than the average person is, comparatively speaking. Right? So I mean, I. I can say that I've read all of Plato's dialogues at one time or another, and I've read basically everything Descartes wrote, which is not a ton of stuff. And, you know, a lot of Aristotle and a lot of Cicero and everything that Seneca has, has written. Um, I haven't read everything Hegel's written or let alone Heidegger. There's all these uh, seminars that, that we have and, you know, that's okay. You know, we you, you can get a lot of value out of just reading a few books, you know? Right. 
Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That only you know, I'll, my, my birth. I'll actually tell you kind of a funny story that I, I came across in one of his books, Harry Frankfurt, who a lot of people probably know more because of his book on bullshit and his discussion of first and second order desires, right? He actually is a Descartes scholar as well. And he, he wrote in one of his books, Love, Necessity, and Volition, that the reason he became a Descartes scholar was a deliberate decision made in graduate school. He was walking in the library and looking at the shelves of like people's collected works. So if you, if you like look at, you know, Nietzsche's collected works, it's a huge shelf or Hegel's or, you know, a lot of these other thinkers. Descartes was very short. You know, and he's like, that's the guy who I'm going to study because I know I can at least wrap my head around this short stack of books right here, you know, and I won't have to like read too much to pass my, my exams and people will let me have a nice quiet life. <laughs> well, maybe he was smart about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally get that and, and I appreciate it. And I feel like. I just feel like at least in the philosophical circles that I'm in, just just a lot of people yeah. are just I, I, I get it. Like I, I truly don't want to say that depth is 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 not valuable. Like it really is, but there's definitely a trade-off there. But yeah, I appreciate you, you clarifying that. That's right. It's a trade-off. And you can't there's no way to optimize it, is, right. is a good way to look at it. So you don't have to feel bad about not optimizing it. You know? Yeah, <clears throat> totally. Um when I when I started kind of my my undergrads and which which was philosophy and psychology, I wasn't doing it for with any career like in mm. mind. Like I just wanted to do it for its own sake. And part of why I wanted to do it is that once I started learning philosophy, I started to really become bothered by the fact that I was choosing what I wanted to study. It's like, you know. Oh, this guy is cool. So this guy is cool. So I'm going to read them. And I was like, well, if that's the case, then then I'm just really following all my biases, right? Like, so like guys that I like, I just going to like them more guys that I dislike, you know, I'm never even going to properly understand what they're saying. And so I just felt that a degree with like some degree of, of formality would, would force me out of like going in, into a very specific path. And I'm just wondering, you know, if, if you consider that to to be a danger of like self-study, or if you think that, you know, kind of the that it becomes kind of pointless to just like learn thinkers that you don't like or you don't find interesting just for its own sake. <laughs> okay, so those are some really great questions. Um let me let me start with the the last part. I mean, it's sort of like um so I have a friend who he's a great reader and he talks about the broccoli and the steak. He doesn't like broccoli, which, which I do, but you know, you could substitute anything else that you're not really into uh, in there. And um, so he's got the reading that he doesn't want to do, but he feels is good for him. And then he's got the reading that he does want to do. And he makes himself eat the broccoli before he eats the steak. And he, you know, he's a very, busy guy. He runs a corporation. So he reads about an hour a day. Um, and, but he's very disciplined when it comes to it. So with what you're talking about, you could actually 
just eat broccoli, right? Never, you never give yourself steak or dessert or anything like that. You just eat the stuff that's good for you. Broccoli and little pick other things that people often don't really like, you know, some Brussels sprouts and liver, you know, pick all the foods that you're not into, but you know, are supposed to be good for you. Um, You don't want to do that. That, that's a terrible idea because you're going to, you know, you're going to make yourself miserable. I mean, you will probably, in having to study people that you're not originally interested in, or you're, you know, use that word bias, maybe you're biased against, right? You will occasionally realize, oh yeah, there's actually something quite good here. I'm glad that I, I studied this. Just like, you know, in the world of exercise, you go to a trainer and they make you do exercises that you don't really like to do. Um, well, you know, you can, you can discover some benefits to that, but you shouldn't be doing that all the time. Maybe, maybe if we're going to give a rule of thumb, you should be like my friend. And half of the time you read stuff that you really want to read. And on the other half of the time you read what somebody makes you read or tells you you ought to read, but you don't want to do, you know, and you know, there is something to, developing self-discipline to be able to read things you're not particularly interested in. That's probably part of becoming a mature adult. And, you know, it's, it could be to your benefit, but the other thing too, so you're right. There is a danger there. Maybe we could call it self-indulgence, just reading the things that you have decided at that point in time that you're into. And I see people doing this with like stoicism, right? Where they're they're like, uh, I'm only going to read stoic literature. Everything else is garbage. And you're like, well, you know, these stoics, they read other books. I don't know why you wouldn't want to. Zeno was actually <clears throat> bringing together things from several different philosophies together. So... Maybe it's not good for you to to do this. Sort of like people who uh, in in other realms of literature, they're like, I only read um, science fiction novels that involve military themes. And you're like, well, you know, there's more to science fiction than that. <laughs> you know? um, and and sometimes it might be entirely due to what you're you're talking about. It's like reinforced biases. But you know, we're we're uh, animals that have rationality so we can see that and we can say that's not a good thing for me i should read some more of this sort of like somebody who's like all i eat is potato chips well maybe you should i don't know get some some other things in your diet right you can make a decision to do that i really like potato chips sure that's that's fine you still have a brain (laughs) that'll let you choose between other things so I think there there can be a danger there, but it's one that once we're aware of, we can we can figure out how to work our way past if we want to, you know. And and it might be that some people don't want to. It might maybe maybe there's <clears throat> certain stages where all they want to do is read Nietzsche like and obsess about him constantly and talk to everybody they can about this brilliant guy Nietzsche. Maybe they're going through a phase, you know. And then later on, they'll be like, oh, wow, I can't believe I was that person, you know, getting in everybody's face about this or that. I mean, people do this with with philosophers quite a bit, right? So, but they do that with other stuff too. Like, you know, 
oh, I'm into CrossFit. Now everybody has to hear about me being in, you know, into CrossFit or I become a, a vegan. Now I'm going to talk to everybody about my veganism or, you know. Yeah, that's true. I think a balance, you know, is is important. And and you're right, you know, as long it certainly doesn't eliminate it, but I think you're right, as long as you have the that the possibility of bias is possible in your mind, then you know, you can probably reduce it to some degree, or at least, you know, try to to work around it. And and that's what yeah. I've what I've been trying to do for the best of my ability. Um all right, so a bit of a of a deviation, but you know, in one of your of your recent talks, I saw you talk about different types of truth, and that kind of you know got my brain thinking. Oh yeah. So you know, there, there's several theories of of truth, and you know, there's also people that would argue that you know that there's several types of truth, and they're they're simultaneously true, which which yeah. I, I would agree with. Now, when I was younger. I saw truth as kind of like a a unitary phenomenon. So like there's just this thing through that that's truth and then you, you know you can you can discover it, right? Yeah. And as I got older, especially as I got interested in religion, I was like, well, religion has all this stuff here that I think is is really valuable and that I consider as true, but it doesn't strike me as the true that I typically conceive of in philosophy and yeah, kind of yeah. the way that I conceptualized it at the time was kind of like if religion was true in the sense that it was philosophically true but it was hard to speak about it in philosophical terms and so there's this narrative mm -hmm. on top that kind of you know helps you understand it okay but but then as I got older I kind of started becoming a bit skeptical of that view and and now I think, I think I'm like misrepresenting the truthness of religion by kind of subduing it uh, to philosophy. Like it just feels like a truth on its own right that I shouldn't view it through the lens of philosophy. Okay. And so I'm just curious about, and and also this, and now that I would say religion is probably the biggest one, but I would say this kind of applies a bit to art as well. Oh, but yeah, I'm just yeah. curious about you know, your overall views about, you know, kind of theories of truth and, and what you think of it. And also, from my understanding, you do believe in gods. And mm -hmm. so if you can obviously, you know, be as detailed or non-detailed as you would like, but, you know, how, how does your faith kind of fit within what typically, typically people consider as true in philosophy versus, you know, being being true in religion? Okay. Well, I would start by saying there's no such thing as religion as such, like in essence, there's religions and they're, you know, historical and have this like, you know, vast community behind each one in text. So they're always these complicated things. We can generalize about religion, but in doing so, we're, we're like abstracting away from what it is that, that people actually practice and, and believe in and are shaped by. The same thing with philosophy, though. There's no such thing as like philosophy per se. You know, there's all these different ways of doing philosophy. Um, and, you know, the, we were talking about originally having this, this view that like, so there's a truth to religion and it has to work through somewhat different means than philosophy, like narrative. 
I mean, that's essentially what Hegel thinks, you know, religion and interestingly art, sort of the highest expressions of human development, except for philosophy, which is better than them and gets to say what the real meaning of them is, you know, as so, so convenient for Hegel, since he is a philosopher to, to tell us what, you know, religion is all about and what art's all about. Right. Um, and, and, uh, there's other people who have, you know, had similar points of view, you know, going all the way back to Cicero, there's this, this notion that, you know, you've got kind of like made up religion for the dummies that are ordinary people. And then there's like a more philosophical religion. And then there's, there's, you know, straight out philosophy. Averroes had a similar kind of, kind of point of view. I think this is kind of common among philosophers, right? So there's, there's a, a long tradition looking at things in that way. Now you can you can kind of push back and say, well, wait a second, philosophy, you use narratives. I mean, think about Descartes' meditations. It's a story about here's what I thought, and here's what I thought, and here's what I thought, or platonic dialogues are essentially plays in which people, there's very little action and there's a lot of discussion, you know? So it's not, it's not as if like narrative is in there in religion and not there in in philosophy at least some philosophy and then there's you know some some literature that we consider to be quite philosophical you know we look at dostoevsky's novels in which characters are arguing philosophy but within the scope of their relationships and their lives and you know it's pretty philosophical so it's not as if there's a nice dividing line <clears throat> between these things right so I'm trying to remember what was the the other part. So there's like the, oh yeah, my own views. So I'm a philosopher who was raised within the Catholic Church, and it was at a time when catechesis was terrible, and the people who taught us really didn't know much of anything, including the Catholic tradition, you know, and it was partly a product of the boomers being the people who taught us and Vatican II and this reaction against the very doctrinaire, rigid, you know, kind of thing. And they swung to the other extreme and it was all, hey, Jesus is a nice guy. You should be nice like him, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing, which I found completely uninteresting and unattractive. So I left the church while I was in Catholic school. And they were cool with it. That's how that's how liberal they were at the time. You know, they would make us go to mass, but we could like demonstrate by not standing up when we were supposed to and not singing and stuff like that. You know, this is the thing too. Religion, it's not like any main religious tradition is the same everywhere. It's gonna there's gonna be all these interesting local ways in which it's done. And then, you know, I would was interested in religions and what people had to say. So I started studying world religions and I would, I would occasionally go to different people's services here and there, you know, and then, um, but I, you know, I was living a pretty, uh, we could say philosophically, but hedonistically oriented life <clears throat> when I was in the army, when I was in college, you know, I, I, uh, partied a lot, had a lot of relationships, um, you know, spent a lot of time playing music and things like that, as well as studying philosophy and doing, doing art on occasion. And then 
went to grad school after working for a year. And while I was in grad school, I started reading Thomas Aquinas and Anselm of Canterbury, basically just to work on my Latin. And I found that what my professors and fellow classmates were saying about them, oh, they're stupid. They, you know, they're just religious blinders on completely wrong. There was a real, you know, interesting thought there that was quite robust. And I also, you know, had a few encounters with classmates had the idea that if you were religious, that would make you not as good of a philosopher because, you know, you were, you were being biased or you were like, you were not considering the whole realm of human experience. <clears throat> and then I saw that there were religious people who really did do that, that they, they, they were religious and they didn't leave out things or throw them aside. And those are the thinkers I've always gravitated towards the most, where having God in your life or in the picture doesn't simplify things. It makes things more complicated. So Søren Kierkegaard, for example, you know, or Gabriel Marcel, or in fiction, Flannery O'Connor, or Graham Greene, or Iris Murdoch, who's also a great philosopher. You know, all of these people are very interesting to me because they, you know, they, they see a religious dimension to things and they believe that there is a God, but they're not claiming like to have special knowledge or the authoritative take on it. And they're often kind of leery about what the official authorities, you know, in their, their group have to say, um, because half the time they're full of crap, you know, historically speaking, let's say, um, and they're trying to puzzle things out, you know, and, and, and still do justice to all the other realms of life, you know, relationships, having to work, you know, human suffering and illness and, and disappointments and, you know, the joys of um, meeting somebody, falling in love and getting it on. And, you know, all of these sorts of sorts of matters they try to make sense of within religious framework that doesn't have everything neatly packaged, you know? So there's many thinkers out there like that. And those are the ones that I'm attracted to. And I would say that, you know, I'm somebody who believes in God, um, but doesn't have a, a great relationship with, with God. And if I had to describe it, I would say sort of like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I wrestle with God rather than like just simply following God or worshiping God or things like that. When it comes to institutional religion, I think that the, you know, the Catholic church right now in America is in terrible shape. You know, we have all sorts of crazy stuff being preached by ideologues from the pulpits. You know, there's been kind of a devil's bargain that many conservative Catholics made with our Republican Party. And as it's gone off into crazy land, so have they, you know, to the point where I would say they're actually more anti-Christian than Christian. And, you know, we've got lots and lots of problems with the way authority has been used and sexual abuse and cover-ups and stuff like that. So it's not a very edifying picture. And and I'm totally, <laughs> when somebody's like, I don't like the Catholic church, I, I can be like, yeah, totally understand, but that's not going to keep me from reading Augustine or, or teaching him or, you know, reading 
other people who had a problem with the church of their time and yet would go to, you know, partake in the sacraments. So, you know, I'll, I'll cap this off by saying, oftentimes learning history is a really great thing to put things in perspective. So there's good news and bad news about where the institutional Catholic church is right now, which is in pretty bad shape. Um, the, the bad news is the church is in really bad shape. The good news is it's always been like that. You know, it's just like changed the configuration of what kind of a bad shape it's in. So it's never, it's not like there ever was like a golden age when everything was working out great and there weren't any power struggles or, you know, people pushing their, their own agendas or, you know, people suffering who shouldn't suffer. That's, that's always happened. And it'll probably always go on because we human beings are, uh, you know, we're messed up creatures. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that we should just be fatalistic and say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do, you know. So that's, I mean, that's how I approach it. I, I, you know, I do work on a lot of uh, uh, Christian authors and I don't like give them an automatic pass because they happen to be Christian. I also work on a lot of anti-Christian authors as well, who sometimes have good points to make about religion. You know, think about Nietzsche, for example, you know, some of the people that, are in today's religious communities are full of resentment and you know he he got them pegged it's just not universal the way that he seemed to think right but for example when you mentioned that you know that you that you believe in gods like would you mm -hmm. say that your belief in gods is through kind of like a a philosophical analysis that you have demonstrated not demonstrated no. sorry but but like right so so you you, you so this is kind of the point that I was trying to get at, which is like, yeah. you know, it's a truth that that goes beyond philosophy. Would would you say that's the case? It encompasses philosophy, and philosophy informs it. I would say. Um, I mean, God gave us brains because He wants us to use them. That is a, I mean, they don't they don't express it in that way, but that's like a constant among Christian philosophers, like. Augustine or Lactantius or any of these early Christian thinkers, they're like, God gave you the faculty of reason, not so you could be some credulous, superstitious bigot, but so you could develop this capacity and figure out what the hell this like transcendent thing God is and how not to treat each other so badly, you know, and maybe how to make a less miserable bastard out of yourself, you know? So I think philosophy can play a major role in that when it when it's actually willing to be in dialogue with with religion and that's that's part of what happens in uh human beings we're we're the ones who do philosophy or who practice or believe in religion and so we're the locus where this this happens it's not like there's some big force out there with a capital p called philosophy and another one called religion and they like clash or something it happens within us and our, our discourses so we get to decide we want to do with these conflicts and overlaps and interactions. And um, I don't think that, I'll put it to you this way. I've heard of a few people converting to, say, Christianity through being convinced by some philosophical argument for the existence of God, which then you have to supplement for, you know, whatever religion it's going to be with uh, an argument for why you should like listen to this interpretation rather than 
this one. I always suspect those people and think that they're they're lying to themselves. You know, I think that when people do have conversions, and and you know, somebody else who talks about this really quite well is William James in his Varieties of Religious Experience in the chapter on conversion. There's always a whole bunch of stuff like kind of coming together over time. And it makes you more open to thinking about something or hearing something. And then maybe there might be a moment where suddenly everything goes from this to this, but it's, it's not as if the one thing that you think is convincing you is doing all the work. It's all this other stuff that's in the background. And as that erodes, you know, maybe somebody's belief can erode as well. Right. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. I, I completely, you know, understand, you know, that perspective, and, and I agree with with a lot of it. Um, and you know, we're kind of running out of time, you know, for for both of mm -hmm. us. So we should should wrap it wrap it up. But I just want to, you know, thank you for for coming here. It was was honestly like a really enjoyable conversation. Like it, it yeah, was really I've, I've enjoyed this too. Awesome. And and also, you know, more broadly. I just want to appreciate you know all the work that you've that you've done uh because well, it's it's really important you know not and I hope I hope you have a sense of of the higher purpose you know that that it, that it serves which is you know on one hand you know it's cool that I was struggling with Heidegger and, and that you helped me and you know that's cool yeah, yeah. that's that's worth it but at the same time you know there's a there's a greater purpose to it which is like you know you're you're helping you know, humanity, you know, to a small degree to be more engaged with philosophy. And that makes the world a better place. Like I truly believe that it does. And, you know, there's, there's nothing more important than that, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's great to be able to do that. It's a lot of time more me kind of standing out of the way and letting the thinkers themselves say what it is that they have to say and then like putting it into more contemporary examples and 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 words you know uh, sometimes people this might be a good good way to end sometimes people are like well but what's your philosophy you know or you know when are you going to come up with your own philosophical ideas and my, my answer is usually well why the hell would i want to do that you know i've already got like great stuff that i don't have the time to do justice to with just like plato and aristotle and seneca and you know a few other people why should i do all the heavy lifting when they can do it instead <laughs> so if i can if i can so i can be like a bridge to people doing that but ultimately the idea is for me to get the hell out of the way and them to have a relationship with Aristotle or a relationship with Heidegger or whoever it is, you know, that's, that's where the real payoff will be, I think. Right. Yeah, totally. So, you know, and I actually had, you know, a lot more stuff that I want to talk about, especially in stoicism. Well, maybe we'll I, do I another episode, you know? Yeah. Awesome. That, that'd be amazing. I, I planned stoicism to kind of like be half the episode, but it didn't, didn't quite work, work out that way. But yeah, maybe we can we can do this again some other time when you when you're not too busy. So sure, I don't want to hold up. Good. Awesome. Don't want to hold you too long. So thank you so much once again. And yeah, absolutely. Great rest of the day. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye bye. Cheers.